Isaiah in the sixth chapter lets us know that the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This word holy means sacredness, apartness. One concordance says other than. I like how we have 45 verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's holy. None like our God. He didn't say there's no other God beside me. He said there's no other God. He is the one, the only, the true and living God. And so it's right for us to declare as the angels do, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's no place else that I'd rather be. We're going to be in Exodus 26 this morning. I'm going to read through the chapter in its entirety, 37 verses. I believe that with where we're going, if the Lord should say the same, that we're just going to see more of this truth and prayerfully have an even better understanding of the holiness of God. That these would not just be words that we say, but that we would stand in awe that God Almighty would love us and call us to himself. As I prepare to read through chapter 26, I just want to encourage you. Uh, the word will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. If you do have a Bible, please turn there and read along. If you like to read along with the Bible in your hand, there are Bibles on the back table. You can take that, keep it, read it, circle in it, draw closer to God through his word. As we're reading through this passage, it's not a narrative, so this is not going to be some fun and eventful storyline or plot that you're going to hear. There's going to be a lot of distinctives, 50 different times, at least in my counting, as I've been reading through this word week after week, we see the word shall repeated. And there are going to be a lot of details about things that we are probably not going to leave here and build. But as we're reading through this word, I'd like for you to be attentive to these distinctives and these details. Because it points us to the holiness, the greatness, the majesty of our God. So just take note how many times you hear shall. Take note of how specific God is in the building of the house that he would have for his people to build for him. And all the other things that he's sharing with his people through this passage. Before we dive in, I ask that you would pray for me and pray with me. Father, we are grateful that a holy, righteous, and just God would make himself known to his people, that you would reveal your character so that we might know you, love you, and respond rightly to you. Lord, we know that if you don't touch our minds, we'll leave here as confused and in darkness as anybody else in the world. 
But if you would open up our hearts and minds, we know that we will leave here with understanding that would change our lives, that would cause us to look to live for you with every fiber of our being. So, Father, as only you can, through your word, would you speak to us that our lives might be changed forever and that you might be glorified in us and through us always. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall make also, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. 11 curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tan ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. 
They shall form the two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and you shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and, there sh and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. This is the word of the Lord. The word of God is good all by itself. As we continue through Exodus, we've spent some time the last couple of weeks reading the instructions that God has given Moses. And we see back in chapter 25 that Moses is on the mountain receiving instructions for building the sanctuary, which the scriptures let us know here in chapter 25, verse 8, that it may be a place where God can dwell in the midst of his people. And the Lord lets Moses know here in verse 9 of chapter 25 exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. And so as we read through chapter 26, we can see that God did not leave room for interpretation. He gave exact details and specifications for how he wanted the tabernacle and the furniture to be built. And over the last couple of weeks, we looked at the Ark of the Covenant we looked at the table of the bread of presence and the lampstand that were furniture that was to go in the tabernacle. Today we're going to peruse over the instructions that God gave Moses for the tabernacle and some other instructions that he also provided for the layout and the setup and teardown of this tabernacle. And just suffice it to say that we're not going to be able to go line by line and talk about every element of the tabernacle. I know that that's disappointing to many of you, <clears throat> but I'm going to try just in the little bit of time that we have to help us see and maybe paint a picture, if we can, of this tabernacle 
so that we can understand what God is looking to teach his children by requiring, not asking, requiring them to build this house to its exact specifications. And so we open up here in chapter 26, verse 1, where the Lord lets Moses know the tabernacle is to have 10 curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and that they're to be cherubim skillfully worked into them. Now, just again, so we can get this picture of the tabernacle so we can understand the point that the Lord is making. I had to do a little bit of reading, and this is over some years of study and over the last couple of weeks as well, just looking at some of the colors that the Lord gave the instructions for the building of this curtain. See, because for us, it would be lost because we can just go to the store today and pick up a purple shirt. If you like it, if scarlet is your color, if blue looks good on you, then do blue. You know, and you can just go buy it and move on. But that wasn't so easy for the children of Israel or for people in the ancient Near East. In order to get this color, purple or scarlet, you had to get a marine mollusk, break the shell, and then take a little gland out of the neck of this mollusk. And when you crush that gland, a milk-like ooze comes out. And then when it touches contact with the air, it turns to a scarlet, purplish color. How many mollusks had to die for these curtains to be built? Like that was the thought that went through my head. These curtains were 42 feet tall and six feet wide. Fine twine linen. Linen was very common, but fine twine linen was very expensive. You had to be wealthy or royalty. For the purple, blue, and scarlet, at one point, only royalty can wear it. At some point, it became where royalty and those who were wealthy could afford to get purple, scarlet, and blue linen. So here God is telling his people, the tabernacle, 42 feet tall, 6 feet wide, each curtain, fine twine linen, purple, blue, and scarlet yarns. Now, just for our frame of reference, height-wise, 10 feet from the floor to the top of a basketball hoop. Basketball is not your thing. Think of a 10-foot ladder and then stack it up four times. That's a really tall curtain. And then six feet wide. And the Lord said, couple them together in groups of five. Now, again, just picture. This is a nomadic people at this point wandering through the wilderness Five curtains that big, that wide was probably not. Let me just fold my blanket, put it in my backpack, and keep it moving. These were massive curtains. And the two were to be overlapped because once you overlap them, that makes them 54 feet long, which makes sense if the temple, if you understand the tabernacle and the bases and the frames, which we'll get to in a moment. So God is very clear. And then these cherubim that were supposed to be worked in, the first time that we hear of cherubim is in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord put cherubim outside of the Garden of Eden with the big flaming sword, like, do not come back in this space. So just so we understand, cherubim were not some cuddly, fluffy angels that you're like, hey, cherubim, I'm just going to slide right by you real quick and come back in. No, cherubim, wow, <clears throat> big angelic beings. So here is the tabernacle, the curtain that God had for his people to build. 
And then the frames. We're going to jump down to verse 15. It says to build these frames that are going to hold up this tabernacle because it's a tent. These frames are 15 feet tall. So a basketball hoop and a half tall. And two and a quarter feet wide. And the Lord says make 15, make 20 of these and put them side by side on one side, 20 more and put them side by side on the other side, and then eight on the back side. So if we understand the measurements, that's 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide. And all of these frames were to be overlaid with gold. Now, even today, I don't have to go through as much trouble to try and help us understand how expensive it would have been to overlay 45 feet feet worth of framing wide and 15 feet tall and pure gold because gold is still valuable today. And so all of these frames and their bars, which were going to be support so that the frames can be held up, were to be overlaid in pure gold. This was a part of the tabernacle that the Lord was given instructions to build. And then there were these pillars, four on the inside about 15 feet, it created what we see here in the word, the most holy place. It was about a 15 by 15 foot box, if you will, within the tabernacle. And then there was about another 30 feet. And at the front of the tabernacle, there were five pillars of acacia wood that were also to be overlaid in gold. Now, here it doesn't give us in chapter 26 the exact measurements. Some biblical scholars argue that they were about 7 feet tall. Some may argue about 15 feet tall. However tall, let's just go with the smaller side. 7 feet is still pretty big, and then you have to overlay that in gold as well. And the veil, so we're not done with the blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twine linen. The veil that was to spread across these four pillars were to be made the same with the same materials as the tabernacle. More mollusks have to be crushed and glands squished and fine twine linen to get this veil up and in place. And then the screen, it's like, where did they get all of this stuff from? Their slaves might, I remind you, at least for the past 430 years and just about three months or so removed from slavery, they're sitting here building something that I guess I'm hoping that we're starting to see like, man, that was a pretty special spot. Fine twine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet for the screen, for the entrance to this tabernacle. If nothing else, even if you can't see it, hopefully we can at least get enough of an understanding that if I was able to walk into this tent, and most people weren't, you had to be of the tribe of Levi and on duty to walk into this tent. But if you could walk into the tent, you walk into that tent and instantly you know this tent right here is different than any other tent that I have ever been in in my life. It's a different tent. It looks different. It smells different than every other tent in this camp. And at least at a baseline level, you walk away saying, this is a tent for royalty. Blue, purple, scarlet, fine twine linen, and gold is all you can see. The base is a silver and a couple of weeks from now, we'll talk about how important even these silver bases were. But all that's inside, 
that the eye can behold. Purity and wealth is what's communicated here. And rightfully so, because this is the house of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So the Lord is teaching his people about his character, who he is, as he gives them these distinctive, these directives and these details for how they're to build the tabernacle. But he also lets them know how it's to be laid out. The Ark of the Covenant is to go into the most holy place. And then the table is to be on the north side and the lampstand on the south side. God is his own interior decorator. Do not mix and match anything. Do it exactly how I tell you to do it. One thing out of place, there's going to be a misunderstanding. This God's house. If I want it there, that's where it goes. And so God has the layout and the design of his tabernacle, his holy habitation all laid out. And the people of Israel are to build it to its exact specifications. But if we stop there, one might walk away and think, oh, okay, well, this is the tent of the king. This is the tent of the Lord of this group of people. You might not walk out if you just stop understanding the colors and the the metal and the materials that are used to know that this is God. And beside him, there is none other. But we start to get that clear understanding when we look at verse 30 of chapter 26, where the Lord gives his people instructions on how to set up and tear down this tabernacle. Verse 30, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So God also gives Moses instructions for how to erect the tabernacle. Now, we don't see it here in chapter 26 of Exodus, but we can look at numbers and get a better picture of what these plans were. And this word plan actually could be translated judgment. So it wasn't plans as in an idea. This is more like a blueprint that you need to follow to its specifications if you don't want this house to fall on you. I put these measurements here and I've laid these things out specifically for a reason. And if you don't follow it, there's going to be a misunderstanding kind of plans. So how you're to erect this tabernacle is very important because it's going to point you to understand who God is. You got it right. The purple, the scarlet, the blue, the gold, he is king. But he's so much more. Numbers chapter 4. Just going to cherry pick a few verses from here that will help point out some of the things that we just read about over the past few weeks in the chapters in Exodus of how the temple, the tabernacle of God was to be handled. Start at verse 4 and read through verse 12, Numbers chapter 4, the instructions of handling the materials that God told his people to build. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. 
Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue and shall put in its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls, and the flagons for the drink offering. The regular showbread also shall be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. And they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, its tongs, its trays, and all the vessels for oil with which it is supplied. And they shall put in with all its utensils in a covering of goatskin and put it on the carrying frame. And over the golden altar, they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. And they shall take all the vessels of the service that are used in the sanctuary and put them in a cloth of blue and cover them with a covering of goatskin and put them on the carrying frame. And we'll jump down to verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after the sons of Kohath, shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. In verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, let, the tribe, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die. When they come near the most holy things, Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. But they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. This is serious. You cannot, as a part of the Levitical tribe, a priestly tribe, and we'll see how they are anointed and called to serve God and the people in the tent of meeting. But here the Lord lets it be known that this ark of the testimony, you can't just walk into the most holy place and say, hey, we're about to go. I'm just going to go ahead and grab my hand. Ready on the count of three. Lift. Here we go. It's like, no. One moment. Aaron and his sons have to cover it. And you saw the detail in which it has to be covered with more cloths of blue and scarlet and goat skin to make sure that you don't lay eyes on it. If you so much as look at this Ark of the Covenant or the table of the bread of presence or the lampstand, you die. If you touch it, you die. Now, royalty, absolutely, I saw that, but there's something even different about this furniture in this tabernacle, I can't even touch it. I can't look at it. Because what God is communicating to his people is his holiness. He is God. And he is God alone. And so when handling the things of God, because it represents the presence of God, you can't behold it with your eyes. And the word lets us know when Moses wanted to just take a sneak peek of God, God said, listen, Moses, I love you. 
and we've been walking really close together, you might be able to catch my backside. But if you saw all of me, you'd die. You can't take it in. He's holy. He's sacred. He's other than, like nothing and no one else we've ever seen. And because God has sanctioned these things to be used in his service, nobody can just go in and touch it. You can't even look at it. It starts to give us a better picture of the holiness of God. He's king of kings, and he's Lord of lords. He is God almighty, and there is none like him. And now you start to get this sense that when I enter in to the presence of God, I'm in company that I must change the way that I think, the way that I act, the way that I behave, because I just can't go in here any kind of way. And we understand that. If you get an invitation from the White House, I don't care what your political affiliation is, you're not going to go in with shorts and a T-shirt. You understand the attire, it's a black tie event. If you don't know what it is, you will go and Google it. Black tie event, like what exactly is appropriate for that? Because I want to make sure that I come in correct. I don't want to be embarrassed. If that's the White House, how do you enter into God's house? Well, God is teaching us, you don't just come in any kind of way. You don't just handle me any kind of way. I am God. And you need to understand what that means. And God is teaching his people through the building of this sanctuary, the tabernacle and the furnishings, who he is and how he is to be approached. And there's a whole lot more that we can go into talking about the holy place and the most holy place. But God doesn't give those instructions right now. That's Leviticus numbers. You can see more of the sacrificial system. We'll even talk about it a little bit more next week. But for this week, at least to get it in our minds, that God is other than. He's holy. We can't just handle him in any kind of way. When we enter his presence, we must understand where we are. We must know that if we come to God, it's not, Lord, here are my scraps. No, it's, Lord, here is my best. I'm bringing all of me to you. And the children of Israel will begin to understand this as they begin to interact with the Lord through the building of the tabernacle and the setup and the teardown of the tabernacle. Now, if we stop there, someone may walk away and say, hey, well, then what we need to do is build a tabernacle. Rebuild the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the lampstand. We have the measurements. Let's just go ahead and build it out now, and we can meet in that space. Well, God wasn't having his children build these things as a shrine or an idol that they were to worship. The purpose of the tabernacle was to point the people to their creator so that they might know the character of their creator. And the scriptures let us know as much. Hebrews chapter 9, start at verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool 
and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. We read about that in Exodus chapter 24. If you're new with us, that's probably a couple of weeks back. You can go ahead and catch up and and listen to that sermon where we were reading through Exodus 4 and we saw this passage flushed out a little bit more. And here we go on and we read on in verse 21. And in the same way, he, being Moses, sprinkled with the blood, both the tent, the tabernacle that we just read about, and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So here we see in the word that the tabernacle and all the furnishing, as holy, as majestic as it was, the scriptures say they were copies of the heavenly things. Now this word copy can also be translated replica. So these copies were not to be a replacement, but rather they were to point us to the greater, the better tent, whose builder is God. And so if we understand this rightly, so that we can get it in our mind to to picture this, I've never been to Paris, but I've seen pictures of the Eiffel Tower. It looks pretty massive. I don't know why anybody would want to go up that high, but if you want to, scale it if you like. But it's a really big structure, and it looks pretty amazing. I mean, even if you're not, architecture is not your thing. You see it, it's huge. Now, what if I told you that I have the Eiffel Tower in my pocket? Right, somebody snickered, exactly. And you're like, yeah, that would be silly. No, but really, I do. I have the Eiffel Tower in my pocket. I'll show you. See? Eiffel Tower. Now, from the back, you might have a hard time seeing it. I need you to use your imagination. I'm holding the Eiffel Tower in my hand. Now, nobody here is convinced. Oh, well, Michael, thanks so much. Now I don't need to go to Paris if I want to see the Eiffel Tower. No, this is a replica. Right? I look at it, and it's pretty interesting, the, the detail on this little thing. And if anything, it makes me appreciate if I could get it to scale, maybe I put a speck of sand by it and say that's about the size of a human standing next to the Eiffel Tower. Man, I want to go and see the Eiffel Tower. But I don't walk away feeling like I experienced all that the Eiffel Tower is or may have to offer if I were in person. But this replica may compel me to want to go and see it in person. These things... The tabernacle, the curtains, as massive as they were, and all the color that they had, all the frames and the gold that they were wrapped in, they were copies, replicas of the heavenly things. These copies were to point us to the true and living God. The scriptures say the greater and more perfect tent. So now when we look at this tabernacle and the furnishings, if we understand it rightly, if we understand it for what it is, a copy that points us to our creator, then we get a better picture now. 
when we think of the ark of the testimony, we recognize, oh, God is personal. He's a covenantal creator. He wants to be in relationship with his people. And then we look over at the table of the bread of presence and the lampstand, and we see the lampstand, and we say, wow, God is present. His light shines always. He's leading and guiding his people. In the table of the bread of presence, our God is a provider. And then we look at this tabernacle, and we see the place that God dwells because he wants to be in the midst of his people, and he wants his people to be in his midst. He desires to dwell, settle down with his people. And so now this copy only causes us to long for the true and living, the greater, the more perfect tent. I'm not satisfied with just the copy. The copy is great, but I don't feel the need to go and rebuild it and worship it. The copy helped me to have a better picture of the true and living God that I might long for him. And God is still that same God today. Yesterday, today, and forevermore, he's still a personal, present, providing God who wants to dwell with his people permanently. And to make that point plain, he sent his son so that the copy might be clearly seen and that now we might pursue the greater, the perfect tent. And so verse 23 tells us as much. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, the tabernacle and the furnishings, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So now, this copy comes into full view. The sacrificial system and all the practices and the holy place and the most holy place and how things were to be reverenced and not looked at or touched all pointed us to a creator who loves his people and desires to be with his people. And the great sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could satisfy Jesus Christ enters into the holy places on our behalf so that we can now experience a relationship with our creator. Keep the copies. Give me the real thing. And now because of Christ, we can enter in. And the Lord lets us know that he still has the same desire to dwell with his people permanently. And so the scriptures let us know that Christ is going to return, appear a second time. Jesus told his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them. And if he goes to prepare a place for them, he's going to come and take them to that place. John lets us know that in the gospel according to John. And John also lets us know in the revelation that this place, 
the dwelling place of God, the new heavens and new earth are going to come. And so if we understand God rightly and we can see this tabernacle and the furnishings for what it is, it only causes us to have more expectation and anticipation for what's to come. And so now we are those who are eagerly waiting for him. This word eagerly waiting in the Greek is one word, and it means fully expected. It's not a, I'm not quite sure if he's going to come. Maybe Uh, No, I'm fully expectant that he's going to return. And how did I come to this confident resolve that God is going to return? Well, because I remember the copies. The same God who was faithful to walk with his people through the wilderness, to walk with his people through the book of Judges. Go read it and you will see the faithfulness of God. To walk with his people through the period of the kings, to send Jesus Christ to save a people who would crucify him. All because of his love for you and for I, that we might dwell with him permanently. That God who was faithful in that way. Well. I'm eagerly waiting, fully expecting that he's going to come again. And in the same way then that the nation of Israel would have gotten to understand God better through the tabernacle and the furnishings and approached him rightly, it would have changed the way that they lived. And it did. At least for a period of time when they were willing to live obedient. And it should do the same thing to us. Having that expectation of a faithful God who wants to dwell with his people permanently. It should change the way that we live. And the scriptures encourage us in that way. And so as we wind things down a little bit, I'd like for you to turn to 2 Peter if you have your Bible. I'm going to start at verse 9. Again, if we understand that the tent was temporary, but that God has a greater and more perfect tent, a permanent place where he desires to dwell with his people, then people of God, we should be a people that are eagerly waiting, fully expectant for his return. As a matter of fact, because of this second coming, it should inform the way that we live in our present day. And here Peter, writing to the church, knows that there have been some challenges. Some time has passed. And some people say, hey, you missed it. The second coming has come. And so Peter was writing to them, encouraging them. It hasn't come. Hold fast. God is faithful. He's going to return and take us home. And so here, picking up in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This dwells is the same word, settle down, permanently be with. So here, Peter is letting us know, because of God's promise, this faithful God, the one who revealed himself to Israel through the tabernacle and the furnishings and has now revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ, this should inform the way that we live. What kind of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? This word waiting is speaking about anticipation, again, fully expectant. This word hastening is earnestly desiring the coming of the Lord, a longing for. Meaning if I understand who God is, we just sang it, nothing else will satisfy, nothing else will do. Why would I settle for scraps when I can get God? Why would you go to some rundown tent of some fake made-up God, when you can have God himself, not even anymore the big 42-foot curtain by 54 feet long when it's coupled together, not the, the Ark of the Covenant that you can't look at or touch, but you can have a personal relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. What kind of people ought we to be? The same way this tabernacle and furnishings, this sanctuary, this sacred, holy space caused the children of Israel to change their behavior when they entered in is the same way that the love of Christ should cause our behavior to change when we enter in. And so we should be people. Godliness means Christ-like character. Holiness, that's speaking to living in obedience to a holy God. This is the way that we should live because we are fully persuaded, completely confident that he's going to make good on his promise. But if we don't remember these truths, then we can start to live pursuing and looking for other things. See, that was the beauty of the tabernacle and the furnishings. It was a constant reminder, this replica Though I may not be able to go to Paris, I can look at this replica and be reminded and say, man, you know, the Eiffel Tower, and just sit it on my shelf, and every now and then it just jogs my memory. If I have ever been there, just how awesome and big and majestic it was. How much more God? That's what the tabernacle would have done. But that's what Christ does for us. That's what the cross does for us, this reminder That's why the replicas that we have of a cross is to remind us of who Christ is and what he has done. And so now we enter in with lives of holiness and godliness because we're fully expectant that the same one who came to pay the price for our sins so that we can have a right relationship with God and not need the sacrificial system anymore is coming again. So a question that I've wrestled with this week. Is the second coming informing the way I live presently? Am I living my life today in light of the fact that God 
is coming back again? Is that what informs the kind of person that I am to be, living lives of holiness and godliness? And then if we can wrestle a little bit more, what are some of the things that cause me to be distracted from remembering who God is and that there is none beside him? Nothing else will satisfy. The promotion won't do it for me. My kids coming to Christ won't do it for me. A perfect relationship won't do it for me. Those things would be nice. I'm not saying that those aren't nice things. I'm just saying they won't satisfy the longing of my soul. Because who can you put up against God? It's like taking a tent from the camp and putting it next to the house of God, the tent of meeting. Like, eeny, meeny, mighty. Are you really thinking about that? Which tent do you pick? But sometimes we find ourselves picking the wrong thing. I want to invite the praise team to come back up. I want to encourage us on this morning. Replica. People of God, we need to be intentional. We need to have reminders that will cause us to long for God and God alone. We need to put up markers in our lives and set it so that we can remember that we might have this copy that causes us to reflect on our creator who's faithful and that we would pursue him and nothing else. And just in case, if you don't know where to start, some replicas, maybe a physical object, 15 minutes reading your Bible. The word of God that he left for you and I. It's a replica. It lets us know his word so that we can know his character and be reminded that when I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear. Why? Because God is with me. I need that reminder. I need that reminder. I need that reminder that when I'm thinking something else might satisfy and I start pursuing that, that God lets me know, hey, Michael, you're going to have trouble in this life, but don't worry. I've already secured the victory. We've won. Listen, we should be a people who live our lives in playback. I shared this with a couple of people. I may have shared it before, but it's worth sharing again. I remember VHS tapes, some DVRs. I don't know what you record things on. You don't even record anything anymore. Anyway, you get it. VHSs, stay with me. Remember recording a game that I was going to look to watch, the New York Giants were playing. And afterwards, I was going to go home and watch the game because I couldn't catch it. I was working. But you know when you record something, you don't want anybody to tell you because you just want to see it. But then somebody told me the score. Man, I know who won. But I realized something. Knowing the score changed the way that I watched the game. Y'all don't hear what I'm saying. Somebody already, you preaching the sermon, wait for me. It caused me to change the way that I watched the game. Now while the Giants are losing with less than a minute to go, I'm not antsy. I'm just calm. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I already know we win. So I'm watching calm, cool, and collected. They just threw an interception with one minute left. Just everybody be easy. 
I don't know how it's going to happen. We're going to pick six. Something's going to happen. We win. People of God, we win. We win. And if we don't remember that, we go through the game thinking we're defeated. And the score has already been determined. He's coming back. Guaranteed. So I'm living my life today in the present in light of the fact that his promise is good. And I know it doesn't look good. We only have a few seconds left. And I don't know how it's going to come together. But calm, cool, and collected. Because I was already told the score. We have to live that way. And we need reminders of that truth. What's going to be your tabernacle? What's going to be the furnishings that when you sit down, you're reminded of God. 15 minutes, they say 15 minutes is a lot of time, like five minutes. I'm not trying to be legalistic or dogmatic. Just do something. We can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results. I'm watching CNN or Fox News, and I'm stressed and overwhelmed because I keep seeing it over and over and over again. Press pause, read and pray. I know it looks bad. He's coming back. And I need to be reminded of that. You need to meditate on the word of God. Spend five minutes, just quiet. Listen, this is what I do. Take it, leave it. I don't listen to the radio anymore. Everywhere I drive, I drive in silence. Because I'm meditating on the word of God. And I'm praying. And I'm singing the songs that come to my heart. And not because I'm holy or sanctified, but because I want to make sure I keep living. And I need those reminders. And even with those reminders, the struggle's real, life is hard. But I want to endure to the end. What are you going to do? What are you going to do that will cause you to remember? The nation of Israel had copies. We've got Christ. Will you enter in to the holy place and leave some things behind? Because you know you can't come in with that. You know the attire, and you don't need to Google it. He tells us, accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Run to him for help. A peace that passes all understanding. Close with this thought. This is going to free many of you. You can't do it. I don't care what anybody else tells you. Don't let the slogans fool you. Yes, we can. No, you can't. You can't do it in your own strength. And you don't have to. Christ has come. So let's stop trying and striving to be enough and trust that he is enough and lean on him. Doesn't that just cause about five of you to feel like a gorilla just walked out the room? Right. Then please, for the next couple of minutes, you and God, you know what it is that's been a distraction from pursuing the presence of God. Give that to the Lord. But also, I want you to wrestle with this. Ask God sincerely, Father, what would you have for me to do that I might remember who you are? what you've done, and what you're going to do so that I can live my life in light of the promise.
stop trying to do it on my own. A couple of minutes. Sit, kneel, stand, lay prostrate. You and Jesus. But please, you and Jesus, seek the face of God. We need to be reminded of who he is.